What is the point of this paperwork? What is the point of these meetings? What is the point of managers coming and going? You must gain balance within yourself before you can bring balance to the world. Sometimes I faltered. I had bad days. We need people to be human at work. Heart rate variability, i.e. cardiological coherence, is highly connected with your brain. We came up with a, an assessment or a, a tool that's very simple to use, which effectively just asks nine questions. What, what Welcome to the Meaningful Work podcast. My name is Amit Paul, and I am the host today. And now I get to speak with uh, a new countryman, I think, since I, I moved recently. I was, I was lucky enough uh, to meet up with uh, Gester Palmason. Welcome to the podcast, Gester. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's really fun to have you. And thanks for saying yes. This is a bit of a leap of faith. We, we barely know each other yet. But I do know that you've been a police officer, so I'm, I'm feeling safe on my end. And uh, <laughs> the common interest, I think, that we have is leadership development, which you've been working with for at least nine years, um, as far as I understand, at Complete. Yes, that is correct. So I'm going to kind of just, you know, if you want to read more about Gester, then you check the show notes and, and uh, there will be some bio blurb there and, and a link and stuff like that. But um, what, is, uh, what is meaningful work to you? I think that's a really good question. Uh, and the I think the easy answer is something that you know gives you energy, gets you into flow, you know has a positive effect, uh, and so on and so forth. But I've actually found that meaningful work for me is hard most of the time. Hmm. Uh, and so uh, looking at you know my personal purpose, which is an exercise I went through, and then. Uh, looking at you know just my career and seeing what I've been doing just since I was uh, you know a teenager, it's always revolved around learning things to be able to teach them to other people. Uh, and so I derive a lot of meaning from uh, passing on knowledge, uh, and not only passing it on, but uh, embodying it first. Uh, you know, having the experience, not just getting the t-shirt hmm. uh, and then being able to describe the experience and encourage others to make the experiment. So, so in terms of meaningful work for me, I think it's, um, it's a combination of things that, uh, you know, give me energy, but drain me at the same time. Uh, you know, are, easy and create flow but are hard at the same time so for me when i think about it, it it's a lot of polarities that exist within a in a particular box really um so yeah and i think uh i can experience it in i mean i experienced it in law enforcement i experienced it in leadership coaching i've experienced it in various projects in my personal life so yeah, I mean, I looked at I looked at the de definitions. I've looked at you know positive psychology. I've looked at you know what a lot of people have written. But I think what is left out for the most part, and what I thought was interesting, was the hard work uh, that goes into creating meaningful work for me. That's interesting. Yeah, I've always said that kind of jokingly that I'm grateful for the gift that my parents gave me that I understood the joy in working hard. Uh, yes, I, <laughs> so, <laughs> that is a good one. Uh, but and and if, but it's a good yeah. and, and yeah, I think you know hard, hard work is one thing. I think, but I think also, uh, you know, the fact that it is at some points in time generally not enjoyable, mm. like literally painful, but still there is some intrinsic drive that keeps you moving in a direction that you might not even know what is or what awaits. There is just an intrinsic drive there. Hmm. But that, and so, yeah. That sounds like a very trustful way of, of moving with it and maybe not so typical. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it, I think I've, I've found that, you know, if you just transformation in general, if you want to, 
transform, you know, if you look at the piece of the word trans, that, that you know, transatlantic, you know, trans, it's from one place to another. You're literally changing your scenery. Uh, and form, you are taking a different shape. So your shape is changing. And I've never found any shapes to change a lot unless they are tried and tested a bit first. So I've I've learned to, you know, accept, the pain in search of meaning and and also the pain that goes with doing something that's meaningful mm. Mm. i mean if you yeah so I, I, I so for me that was the interesting piece when i started to think about it I thought, yeah that's actually quite a lot it's not as fluffy and you know as you know one might think on the first go meaningful work it's beauty it's sharing it's you know, hunting something that fulfills you. It is all of that, but it also incorporates some some valleys, I think. Right. But in how, because you work a lot with people and you have been for, for a long time and I'm imagining that there's quite a few of like transport, transformation processes and, and change processes and, and things like that that have been going on that you've been facilitating and assisting and supporting in. Um, how typical, like, if you look to your clients versus your own experience of it, or own definition of it, like how how does that thing relate? Like how does it scale for a version of the meaningfulness? I, well, I think I think it's a it's a part of it. I think too many of the people that I meet have not found the meaning in the work that they do, mm. and that's probably why they're searching, and that's probably why they you know end up at my doorstep sometimes. But there is a one of my absolute favorite conversations to have with people is to help them identify their purpose. Mm. And that goes a long way to guide them into places where they might find meaning. Um, and so, and, and that is, I mean, if, if I could talk of a standard conversation I have with most of the people I work with, that would be one of them. Because it is profoundly important to find meaning in what you're doing. Uh, but meaning, I think, can be found anywhere if that's the kind of the the angle or the spin you put on it for yourself. And I think in today's climate, a lot of people are searching for meaning. And I think the whole COVID piece uh, really woke up a lot of people to think about, uh, you know, whether what they were doing had meaning for them as, as uh, seen by the Great Resignation. Hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting times in that sense that, that, and I love what you're speaking to with regards to the finding of meaning or like that meaning is not necessarily intrinsic in the thing that you're doing, but rather how you relate to the thing that you're doing. So there's a, there's a way for you to relate to almost, almost, I would say anything, uh, Almost. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, I, as, as a very small experiment, I found, I mean, one of the things that I uh, utterly dislike in my daily life is folding laundry. Uh. Uh, and, uh, you know, I've, I think, and I think my, my general strategy for years now has been avoidance. Uh, but uh, when I kind of reframed it as a, an opportunity to listen to podcasts, which I rarely have as a father of three and, you know, busy work, all of that. Uh, it started to become a really meaningful time for myself. And so there was a slight just shift of frame of mind and now it's become a desirable time <laughs> to spend. <laughs> you know? Nice. So, so if, you, if you search and if you're open to, to shifting your perspective on things, I think there is, you can find meaning in, in most things. Not all, but, but, but most. I'm, I'm curious actually how you got into the, to the, we don't normally sort of go into to backstory too much, but it's like, how did you go from, from law enforcement into uh, sort of, I guess, personal development or organizational development? I don't know which leg you're, you're leaning heavier. Yeah, on. well, uh, well, I do, I do both. But I, I yeah, no, it's an interesting story because I, I think I was about 29 when I kind of, my life got in a bit of a tangle and I didn't really see the way out. And uh, it sent me off into a, uh, in, into the, I think, just the standard call for adventures in terms of personal development. So it really 
kind of forced me to look in that direction of life. And, uh, and I was very happy with the people I came across and the methodologies that I came across. And it generally completely changed my life. Uh, now, that was fine. It's, it changed the life for me. It changed my relationships. It changed, it changed everything. Uh, but, but I was in law enforcement and I still enjoyed being in law enforcement. So that didn't really change anything. But then I, I, had, I had to shift jobs to another agency uh, on, on a temporary thing. And as it turned out, uh, me and that agency, uh, agency's culture were banging heads all day long, every day. Uh, and at the same time, I was uh, having my first child. Uh, so it was pretty good to to be at that agency. It was a daytime job and, you know, not too heavy and all of that. So I thought I thought I had to find a way to just be able to stick around. And my way is usually to occupy my brain with something else. So I heard this uh, leadership coach on the radio. And I thought, leadership coaching, what's that? And then I started reading up and I thought, oh, I could probably be good at this. Uh, really arrogant. Uh, and then uh, I, I saw that the, the University of Reykjavik was starting a coach education program. So I decided to join. And uh, when I was there, I saw a TED talk uh, by this guy called Dr. Alan Watkins, who, who just made so much sense to me. Uh, and and what it did for me was effectively giving me a frame and a language for all of the experience I had accumulated in law enforcement and other places. So that, uh, you know, so I did what every sane individual does and grabbed the phone and tried to call the guy. Uh, right. and, uh, <laughs> and that, that didn't really work out. So I got, you know, uh, rerouted to a, first a secretary and then some member of staff and I it, I, uh, I built I spent a whole year trying to build a relationship with that business and that guy and didn't get anywhere until I eventually uh, decided to you know uh, spend the life savings and and buy a product from the business just to be able to get over there. When I got over there, um, I spent a couple of days and and incidentally he was there when I was there and so when I was going out the door and leaving he said hey, hey come have a chat for a second. You know, what are you thinking about? And I said, well, given what I've seen, I want to do what you guys do in Iceland. And, and then he said, well, actually, we like you. So, you know, do you want to come do the stuff that we do with us? And so that was the kind of beginning of my transition into into that world. And uh, for the first few years, I did it, uh, you know, every day off I had in law enforcement, I used to do projects for them. And I was, uh, you know... Uh, trying out some stuff at home and, and all of that. And then uh, a few years back, I completely transitioned over and, and left my law enforcement career just to, just to do this. Mm. So it was, uh, it, it was a, just a strong, uh, there, like I said, it was a strong guiding something that kind of pushed me that way. And, and it was difficult. And I thought, oh, it's abroad, and it's this, and it's that. And it's, oof, and it's that. But there was always some drive to keep going. That's interesting. Um, wow. <laughs> and, and so and what do you do at, at Complete? So what, what was it that caught you? If we sort of get into the, a little bit more of the weeds of like the tools and the methods. And... Yeah, so, so what initially caught me was effectively uh, his, his talk uh, and it's, it's quite popular on TED, um, is the connection between physiological setup of the body and, and, and the, physio, the impact of physiology on your day-to-day -day performance. And as a, as a law enforcement officer, I had both observed and experienced, uh, you know, every single version, shade of, physiology affecting people's memory, uh, their performance, their ability to recall things and describe things, and, and, my, and my own. Uh, so I just thought he had put forward a profoundly accessible model to understand what was going on and how to uh, disrupt that uh, and disrupt the 200,000-year-old system called your body to help you perform better. Uh, so that's where it started. And, uh, and then what really... Uh, kicked me off was when I went over there they were in in it in their infancy of building a product called uh, organizational network analysis 
which just really sent me off the off the roof. Uh, and I ended up actually a year a year ago writing my uh, MBA thesis on that exact thing. So uh, that so I just kept seeing stuff that they were building. I kept you know uh, hearing things how how they were thinking and how they thought about things. That it was just profoundly different from anything that I had heard but still so accessible, so clear, so integrated uh, that I just, yeah, and, and, and still am. So that's what keeps me interested. I'm just always learning new things. All right, cool. And uh, I kind of want to get into both. Is it uh, is the uh, <laughs> physiological sort of that framework? Is that uh, is it talkable, or is it just go? Yeah, with, yeah. well, we get we can we can give it a go. Right. I mean, it's uh, you can you can see it in the in the TED talk. Maybe we'll throw in a link. Yep. But uh, it's effectively that if you look at any any kind of results uh, connected to human endeavor, uh, you know. People generally want to increase their results in anything. It might be work, it might be sports, it might be field of study, it might be parenting. Uh, and so, what your results uh, predominantly depend on is your behavior. So, what you do governs the outcome you get. So, if I were to t- tell you that I was, you know, in a in a project of cutting down the dead bod, uh, you know, and the next time we would meet, I would be walking out of McDonald's with mayonnaise out to my chin. You would think, well, that's not really believable, is it? Mm-hmm. And behavior is really interesting because it's observable, objective. You can measure it, you can look at it, and you can make up assumptions based on what you see. But that that kind of ignores, and, and our society is very um, obsessed by behavior, I'd say. We're continually assessing behavior. But behavior is driven by another phenomenon in the in the body, which is thinking. And there you get into problems because it's impossible for me to know what you are thinking or to understand the level of quality to which you think it, unless I start to ask you some questions about what you think and why, about you know Iceland, about podcasts, about development, about whatever. Mm. Uh, and so what you think and how you think it predominantly guides your behavior, which guides the result. But then there's another uh, phenomena called feeling. Uh, and there's a bit of a chicken and egg between uh, between uh, thinking and feeling. I don't know, necessarily know if I'm feeling bad and therefore I think negative thoughts or if I think negative thoughts, and therefore I'm feeling bad. But usually the feeling is the trump card. So I know in my dad bot program that after we, you know, finish recording this podcast, the 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 wise thing to do is change into the gym clothes, you know, do a bit of exercise, you know, la la la. But you know what? It's late in the day. I'll probably be tired. Netflix just dropped a new series. I have a bit of chocolate in the drawer, and I know in my head, aka thinking, that what I'm supposed to do, but I just don't feel like it. Uh, and so, and even if you get control of your feelings uh, that you know guide your thinking, guide your behavior and emotion uh, and uh, your outcome, there's another physiological phenomena called emotions that are underpinning feelings. And underpinning emotions is physiology. And so, when we talk physiology in this context, um, all your bodily systems—your you know spleen, liver, lungs, heart—all of these systems are continually sending signals to your brain about what's going on in the system. You know, electric signals, electromagnetic signals, sound waves, pressure waves. And so if you take all those signals from all of those systems into one bundle, that's an emotion or energy in motion. So your emotion, so everybody has emotions all of the time. Also law enforcement officers and special operators and, and men and, you know, everybody has emotions. But feelings are our cognitive awareness of these emotional states. And that's usually where we're lacking. So when I ask people to list how they've felt in the last week or two, they usually come up with about 10 different emotions. And you often, more often than not, six of them are negative. Uh, but research show there are even up to 36,000 different emotional states. And so if emotions and emotional states and physiology is what is driving your feelings thinking and behavior, surely that's worth a trip uh, to to understand how that functions and how that impacts your leadership or whatever the results are after. So I thought there was just, a, I mean, it is a very complex system, 
that we're putting forward in a simplified way, but it is accessible and, and helps you understand what's going on. Yeah. yeah. And it, it sounds like it's drawing on this sort of, uh, that you can access, you can enter into it on different different levels, so to say, and it's kind of recursively recreating itself. Like if you can do something to your to change your state, then then all of the other things are going to kind of bubble up and, and it's going to eventually sort of bubble up through your results and, and, you know, instead of going the other way around, which is kind of the traditional way of approaching. Exactly. You're absolutely right. So, I mean, one of the things that I, that I've had to, you know, had as a travel companion through life is a, a, a massive an, a flight anxiety. So I, f- I fly once a week to foreign places to work, but I just don't like flying at all. Literally, if I could erase it out of my life, I would. Uh, but if you start to look at that from the bottom up, what are the physiological signals of anxiety? It's dry mouth, it's you know sweat in your hands, it's uh, accelerated heart rate, your stomach turns upside down. All of these things are physiological signals of that. Now, if you're able to change the physiological signals that you get sent, so every time I have to step on a plane, I start getting these physiological signals. Uh, So I started to make experiments with, can I possibly enter the iceberg at the very bottom and start to control uh, my physiology? Yes, I can. How? With my breath. So if I breathe in a certain way, I start to interrupt these physiological signals and I change the physiological uh, uh, stuff that's going on in my body. Now that then will create the space as to where anxiety reduces and I can recall some of the facts around flying and help me have a good experience. And this literally, I just made the experiment and this literally works uh, and magic. So before I would fly and, and it's, it's fun to look at it because uh, you know I used to not travel a lot and then I you know married the the travel happiest wife in the world <laughs> and she would come home with a paper going oh look it's just 99.9 to go to Tenerife and I go oh my god that's five and a half hours <laughs> but I would never say that right so as soon as you would make the uh, proposition I'd go mm, you know get the, all the physiological signals but then you know my thinking and the thinking would be oh my god how can I get out of this uh, and then I would you know the behavior interestingly enough would I would smile to her and then I would go, oh, that's a great idea, honey. Uh, well, but do we have the funds? You know, who's going to take care of the kids? I'm not sure I can get the day off work. So the, the behavior get is avoidance. So that's what we see time and time again. We see behavior in people that is driven by physiological phenomena without them recognizing it and without us recognizing it. So when you start to recognize the layers at play, you could also start to help people to identify what's going on. Ah, that's interesting. I, I um, did uh, training on the immunity change, um, the Keegan uh, thing with regards to sort of, which is, I think, a, a really nice framework for, for getting at and looking at the behavior so that you can kind of at least get down to the thinking. And uh, if you have a good sort of facilitator, you'll get down to sort of the feeling emotional level. Uh, but it's neat to be able to have some sort of, because it sounds like it's it's like the first step would be some tactical interventions in the in the physiologically phys- physiology to be able to kind of break the patterns and then maybe start reforming the habits and then as you st- start reforming the habits then other things become available to you as sort of feelings and outcomes and things like that. Yes, you are, you are absolutely right. So the the because um, there is a there is a link between your physiology and your brain. So three key links. Uh, if you look at a heart rate variability, um, which is a, a measure of the heart, uh, a lot of people have it in their watches now, uh, slightly imperfect. But if you measure it properly, you can tell a lot about a person. So what we do on our leadership development programs is we literally make you wear a heart rate monitor for 72 hours. And we can then literally tell you a few very key things about you, for instance, like your energy. Your, you know, your, how much energy you have, the quality of the energy when you're expanding it, when you're recovering it, and all that stuff. So, that seems to be of interest to leaders that you know where a lot of energy is required. Uh, but the key piece is that uh, heart rate variability, i.e., cardiological coherence, is highly connected with your brain. So, when you have chaotic heart rate variability, your frontal lobes shut down. And this is a very, very old system, uh, you know, designed for your survival. 
And so if your frontal lobe shut down, uh, obviously there is inability. You, you lose things like awareness of yourself. So if you're in frontal lobe shutdown, you will, might do, say, or experience things that you cannot recall later on, which was to me phenomenally interesting just in the terms of reliability of witnesses in my old job. Uh, also, your ability to think outside the box, come up with creative solutions, uh, analyze things, all of these things get, get lost when you get into the frontal lobe shutdown, fight, flight, play dead mode. Uh, and, but most of us think that this is a phenomena that happens in extreme circumstance. So, you know, I, I point my gun at you and I, give me your money, whatever. But actually, uh, and, and sometimes in our talks, we show this live. Um, actually, you need a very little, it's, it's really interesting. I, I just last week, I was with a client and I connected them to the, to the heart rate monitor. Uh, and I, I stood behind them and I said to the team that they belong to, well, you know, what I know, what, what this guy doesn't know is there are, there are actually some changes coming to his role. And as soon as I said the word changes, his physiology just went off the charts. And I've tried this multiple times, but both using the word change and using the word challenge, and it will immediately... I mean, you people will sit there smiling, looking like nothing is wrong, and their physiology is just, yeah, go to your battle stations! Like, it's full on. And so that's our physiological reaction to change, which is already affecting our brain function. And then I, you know, it's a bit of a show. You can see it in the TED talk. But then I often give them a bit of a challenge, and uh, and and they won't handle it because of the level of pressure that's there. So yeah, so it is a really, really, you know, the the uh, sense. It's a really sensitive system. The sensitivity of the system is really, really high. Yeah, and that's because it's uh, what is it called? It's like the uh, interoception, right? Is that that is the ability to be aware of your own feelings or something like that? I mean, that's something that's yes. been coming up a lot lately in in medical research, but it's like fairly recent in the medical literature, and I think in other realms, people have been experimenting with this for for longer. Uh, it seems. Yeah, there was. I had. A, I was. Uh, it was interesting. Uh, I was listening to uh, a podcast with Andrew Huberman from the Huberman Lab. Uh, where he was talking about meditation, and he was actually proposing that, you know, that, that uh, you know, I don't know, half of the population is quite interoceptive. Mm -hmm. I meaning, you know, if you can sit there and you can, for instance, start to recognize or count your heartbeats as you sit there, you have a relatively good interoception. Uh, if you uh, are, however, quite externally focused, uh, that's called exteroception. And he was arguing actually that if you if you med if you are very interoceptive, you should uh, engage in exteroceptive meditation, and vice versa. Uh, and so, and he proposed, you know, because I'm I'm actually quite interoceptive. I'm very aware of what what, and even to the point where I sometimes enjoy more being inside, you know, yeah. <laughs> my own own, right. own self rather than externally. Right. Uh, and so, uh, so I'm currently giving it a try to just try exteroception as a as a meditative practice, and I think it's it's just interesting. So yeah, it's a, and also, uh, since you mentioned medical journals, um, there is a statistic I haven't been able to see where it comes from, but that says that like sixty, uh, the the first indication of sixty percent of heart problems in American males is death. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. So, so the the reason being complete lack of interoception, you know. So you, there might have been something going on in the body. Oh, what is this pain I have in my left arm? Ah, oh, surely it's nothing. And just keep, you know, you're unaware of the changes that are happening to you. So I just found it to be a phenomenally interesting statistic. It's interesting and pretty dark. And, uh, yeah, pretty dark. Yeah, I agree. It must be a you know leftovers of my old job yeah, humor yeah. type stuff. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I appreciate that. All right, let's switch gears because I want to uh, have time for the organizational network analysis because uh, that's yes. something you mentioned last time we spoke as well. And I was just really intrigued by how you guys have set this up and, and how you're working with it. Um, yeah, I'm just handing it over. What is it? <laughs> How does it work? <laughs> so, yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it's a really interesting phenomenon. So um, maybe to, to just... A short intro. So, if you look at 
the way organizations have been structured through, you know, since effectively industrial revolution. So industrial revolution told us that, you know, in Taylorism, that splitting up tasks is the best way to go about things. So we created the whole expert school system to educate people to have a lot of knowledge in a, in a narrow field. And we put those people together and create a system. And so, and then, you know, I'm somewhere in the, in the, that hierarchy. And if I need a new something, a new desk, I ask my boss that asks his boss that asks the boss. And six months later, I get an, get an answer. Oh, sorry, you can't have a new desk. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's an okay system. And, and it was at, you know, around the, you know, 18, 1900s. But then complexity of the world increases and we are forced to ch change. So increased complexity means increased pressure on, on the people in that system. So we started to recognize that the functional leaders actually you know, knew nothing about uh, handling money and funds. So we started to create you know, uh, the finance department that ran across the hierarchy you know, knew nothing about people and hiring and firing. So we created the HR function that ran across the hierarchy. And then that whole tech thing was coming. Nobody knew about computers and stuff. So we created that. So we created the matrix organization. And now the matrix organization comes with its own challenges because, you know, who do I ask for uh, a day off? Is it my boss or is it the HR? I know I'll just ask no one and just collect a lot of holiday. <laughs> <laughs> and so... Uh, and, the, and and it's it's in our nature to start to then pit the bosses against each other and all of that. And, that, and you see a lot of tensions uh, connect, connect, connected to that in organizations. Now, then the complexity increases again and you get this big thing like GDPR or some new thing that happens, new legislation. And the boss looks across the business and he goes, oh, well, who should I give that to? Should I give it to Gester? No, no, he's busy. Amit? No, or actually everybody in the system is busy. I know. I'll hire the, I'll create this new positions called project managers and their job is to run stuff through all this malarkey from A to C. Only they usually get no specific funds, money or people. So they have to fight for that with the functional heads, which also creates tension. So you have that going on and then we hire you into a system uh, and you know how it works. Like, you know, you, you get hired into a syst system, you have, uh, you know, a certain thing you have to deliver. And uh, I start to recognize, actually, well, if I need a new computer, I'm supposed to ask my boss that asked the boss of IT that asked Amit to give me a new computer. Uh, but, you know, actually, if I ask John in the computer department on Tuesday, never on Monday, never, don't talk to him on Mondays, but on Tuesdays, mm -hmm. he will hook you up. Mm -hmm. So you start to create those relationships that help you get work done. And so, effectively, you create your own network. And your ability to create your own network is your ability to get things done in that complex system. So we started to think about, so how can we, you know, um, see how uh, these organizations really work? And what's important in how people uh, connect in organizations? And we actually found, and so we we. We came up with a with a uh, an assessment or a or a, a tool that's very simple to use, which effectively just asks nine questions. So there's nine networks we measure, and we can put them into three buckets. So bucket one is what we call the functional network. The functional network is name the people you typically collaborate with. You know the people you need to collaborate with to get your job done. Uh, number two, name the people you typically go, get work-related information from. You know, uh, you know, information needed to do your job. And then the third one is name the people uh, that you can go to that can secure faster progress or get things done faster. So that's agility, effectively. So those are the functional networks. And then, uh, then we move on to the cultural networks, which are name the people. Uh, you feel energized by. Name the people uh, you go to for support when times are tough. So that's energy and support. And name the people you can f you feel you can be really open and honest with. So trust, effectively. And then the three leadership networks are uh, name the people you look to for guidance when you need to make big decisions. Uh, name the people that stretch your thinking, so help you see different perspectives and think outside the box, uh, you know, help you build your ideas. 
and name the people uh, that actively support your development uh, at this organization. So that's strats, uh, guidance, and development. And now all of these uh, individual ways of connecting have a very specific relevance in the workplace. Uh, and they always map if you just, perfectly according to the schematic, right? Like the organizational map. Oh, yes, yes, absolutely. Oh, it's just hierarchically just map 100%. Yes, <laughs> no, actually, interestingly, what we see come out is usually like an amoeba. So we think the future organization looks a bit like this. It's, gonna, it's three layers. Uh, the, the, the top layer, if you will, is a strategic layer of people's ability to look into the future and set strategic direction. Then the bottom layer is uh, a layer of experts that get work done. And then there's a middle layer, which is uh, what we would suggest is uh, best for polymath integrators. So people who are able to integrate uh, you know, the strategic direction and the doing. Uh, and then these organizations then usually connect outside themselves for some sort of other cells that need to support the organization. So it might be contractors or what else. And so this this is a trend we're already seeing. But what we also see is that most of the traditional organizations we see today have very high connectivity on the functional or specifically the transactional networks. So coll- collaboration and information. And usually a lot, uh, actually significantly lower connectivity on the cultural network. And so when we start to look at things like retention and results and all of that, when, it, when we think it's just about, you know, you scratch my back, I scratch your back, and that's it. Uh, of course, it's hard to keep people there. And one of the things I looked into in my thesis was specifically uh, the energy network. And if you look at what people, like there was a big research about what makes people happy at work. And the number thing, well, number one thing, twice as important as the next one, was feeling energized. Mm. So feeling energized was number one. The second one was a sense of belonging. So the level of connectivity you have. And the third one was purpose, that your job had a purpose or meaning where we started this conversation. You know, uh, and when we and and another interesting thing uh, was when I saw, you know, a lot of organizations when you do the 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 traditional Gallup Q12 or some form of measurement on, uh, you know, your your uh, organization, you, there's a lot of complaints around um, lack of information. You know, but when we when we were doing the organizational networks, everybody could point to someone where they would get there. Like literally in a three thousand people network, everybody could point to someone. Uh, and we started thinking, well, that doesn't really add up. So why is this? And we actually found that it's not about the actual transactional piece of information. It's about uh, how that information is relayed to you. So I want to feel like I am important, like I'm important enough that you sit down with me and you know share a piece of information with me. Uh, but most people have the information they need to do their job. So it's it's deeper than that. It's about connection, really. So uh, across the cultural networks. Hmm. So then, so then we you know run some clever mathematics on it stuff, and we can tell you all kinds of things and and take a lot of different lenses. You know, looking at the connectivity between departments, between geographies, between management layers, and all kinds of things. And we can actually let the network tell you who are the most important people in the network. We can see where the bottlenecks lie. And it starts to be really interesting when you start to combine a few of these networks and predict, uh, you know, how the network will develop. So we've actually we had a had a a very interesting case where we got a big business in financial services, uh, where we said to them, "Well, here's a list of twenty people that will probably have quit your organization in about six to twelve months." Mm. And they went, no, not a chance. These are all highly paid specialists. Uh, four months later, they called us and 17 were gone. Mm. And so, and they said, oh, okay, we believe you now. What, you know, what are we going to do? And so, and that was predominantly 
because there was a lot of demand on those individuals. So many people referenced them, but they weren't voting for a lot of other people on things like support. And, and so a lot of demand, but no support that, that kills you. So interesting. I, I, there's a friend of mine that works with, uh, I mean, they, he does, um, neuroscience uh, that is kind of but it works for one uh, financial services company as well in the nordics and they're doing some really interesting like similar metrics but they're putting people into brain scans and, and looking at stuff and and uh, they found something they're also measuring sort of behavior so they put people in a room and they were doing a task and then they were looking at sort of how does this whole interaction play out like who does what for what time and sort of measuring how much time were you spending on your own assignment versus how much time were you spending on others assignment and helping them and so forth and then they also had people self-report on this stuff afterwards and um there there also there was this sort of um, confluence or like a concentration of uh, relationships that went through a couple of people in the room and uh, when they asked them, they were like, so how much time do you feel like you spend your own time versus the other stuff and so forth? And they were like, no, 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 I'm spending most of the stuff on my own time. And, and yet they could see, they could measure that they had a very high sort of frequency of, of, of helping others and, and distributing small pieces of information or like just relating something or, or doing some, some other types of work. Um, and then they also saw, I think, I can't remember, but when they removed them out of the network, uh, they, the network lost efficiency by like, I think half of it or something like that. Uh, and when they, yes. you know, so it's like a huge, like dependence on these nodes that were informal, nobody knew it. They didn't know it themselves necessarily, but like the, the whole network really centered and focused around them in one way or another. And so I'm just wondering, like, I'm just imagining how powerful it would be to like map those things together, like do the, the assessments and also like do the, the self-assessment that you guys are. Yeah. I mean, that should be uh, immensely powerful. I think also what's, uh, and, and this is something we see, and you're right, the uh, awareness of the individual of their importance is not necessarily there. And usually when you see that level of dependency, um, if the the individual has a lot of nominations on, on agility, i.e. the ability to get things done, then usually they will be thriving in the organization but there might also be a bottleneck. So it needs to be looked at carefully, uh, you know, how that works out. And I think uh, the agility network is a very interesting one because in increased complexity, everybody wants more agility. So you see businesses want to, you know, the agile workshops and agile this and agile that and agile customer service. But what does agility really mean? It means that you've empowered people to make decisions in the service of the business. And then we see these networks and they all look like fried eggs, like agility is centered around 20, 30, 40, 50 people in the center. And the, the other 2,000 can't really reference anyone to go to, to get things done. And so if you want to drive agility in your organization, you have to have a really robust conversation around decision making and where it's made. So can a frontline employee decide to give 20% discount to get a deal across the line or you know, give you something to, you know, if, if they made a mistake or do they have to go to the CEO to ask if they can have an espresso coffee instead of, you know, some other type of coffee. Uh, so, uh, and you see a lot of pressure on leadership teams because they haven't kind of worked out how to do this. And therefore the small stuff floats up to their table to make decisions on. And, and often middle management layers are underutilized and, and this all comes through in the network. So, it's, and, and, and I think the, the key thing that I love about this is, uh, you, so we show this in interactive pictures. And so usually when you get a bad workplace survey, you know, you, you take the results out and you try to, you know, get the, the leaders or someone to, you know, change their ways, blah, blah, blah. But when you show all the people a picture of support where there is disconnectivity all over the network, you engage all of those people in, in the change. And so your ability to change your culture is literally, you know, that's, it's an overnight thing if you frame it in the right way. Uh, and you engage everyone in the change, not just have a couple of people pushing the change. And I found that that's a huge differentiator in, in changing fast. 
Yeah, that's interesting. That points to this. I mean, it's like the the self awareness piece that we're also focusing on quite a bit. It's like when you, it's like <laughs> there's this. I think there's a quote that says like if you, uh, there's no point in trying to change people because if they knew why they should change, they have already changed. And if they don't know why they should change, then there's no point in trying to convince them because they're convinced that they don't have to change. You know, so like this whole, <laughs> that's a good you know, you're just kind of revealing the thing and then showing it. And I'm, I'm also just imagining in, in, especially with like leaders becoming a bit more complexity savvy. Uh, I'm imagining that is the, the terminology of like modulation rather than like an intervention and like trying to sort of gradually tweak and, and push and nudge a system rather than sort of just go in and like cut stuff and like be a very direct action oriented, but rather like just gradually support and like buffer and, and like work with this skillfully would, would probably, and I guess that's what, what you guys are helping out with as well, but that's really exciting. Well, well, I mean, that that depends a lot of, uh, I think you're familiar with the, the value system work, uh, you know, done by uh, Don Back and, uh, and, and Cowan on Spiral Dynamics and then Ken Wilbur and all that stuff. And uh, the your approach to how you go about using this is highly dependent on what, what you value. Mm, sure. So you will you will have those you know what we would call red value systems that would be what direct give me the top three things that I need to change you know you know on with it uh, while you would have maybe you know people operating more in the uh, what um, they call the yellow space is more interconnectivity more systems thinking more how can I affect the whole amoeba all of that so so it is interesting also to see the different. Uh, value that different value systems derive from the instrument and how they go about using it. Uh, but yeah, we would always, you know, want to. And I think it's worth mentioning also that you know we never give out who votes for who, uh, but we can tell you who the network floats up for different things. But 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 we we never divulge who votes for who, and it isn't necessary. And 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 so. It's uh, it's an anonymous way, anonymous way to really see how your uh, you know how your whole thing functions, and I think uh, and we and 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 there is also caveats that if you don't get any votes, that doesn't mean that you know you can immediately fire everyone who isn't voted for. It might <laughs> yeah, be that right. they're you know they're misplaced or they're an expert that you know, just works alone, you know, doing an analysis stuff, and you know, so they're you know. But what it does is just open up the right conversations about how your organization actually functions. That's, that's fascinating. And I'm also just thinking of like when you start seeing these important nodes where a lot of information is going through, then there's also like you can, you can start looking at these people that are efficient. Are they because of their decision sort of making policies and, and whatnot? Or is it despite of, you know, it's also like yes. how you can. Yes. Yeah. Well. Uh, it's a very good shout because it it is it can be either or the network analysis doesn't tell you that's where you couple the experience of the business uh, and I think it's also just really when you start to look at risk yeah. uh, and look at phenomena like burnout uh, you start to see very clearly where the risk in your organization sits and uh, and who and we have it's it's an we 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 have this graph where we benchmark um, what we call demand and influence. So demand is the sheer number of votes you get across all of the networks, like just how many people voted for you. Mm. Influence is a slightly more complex thing. So as an example, uh, you know, I have two thousand friends on LinkedIn. They're all in Iceland. Uh, you have two friends on LinkedIn, but your friends are Joe Biden and Vladimir Putin. And they both reference you. So when they need to make a decision, they call a meet and say, you know, what am I supposed to do? Which means that on the global stage, you have way more influence than I have. Although I have more friends, they're just all concentrated in the same place. So, so the, your influence in a particular business is not only the number of votes, but who's voting for you. So the CEO voting for you has, carries more weight in the network than you know, somebody else's vote. And so uh, some fa fascinating mathematics behind all this, which are, uh, you know, but, but it's, so we can effectively, bans we can give you an influence score in the business. Interesting. Okay, I'm going to stop asking now because I'm, I'm like, there's so much, like, it's still bubbling, but, but uh, I'm, I'm just counting on that we'll get to talk again about this stuff at some point. 
Um, so I know we need to round off as well because we're we're at time and I want to respect the time. So um, if uh, is there something that I should have asked that I haven't asked that you would uh, like to impart to listeners? I feel that uh, any question would spin us off into a rabbit hole at this point. So <laughs> so I don't think so. I mean, I've really enjoyed the conversation. Uh, and I think, uh, yeah, starting off at, at meaning, if there would be one message uh, to, the, to your listeners, it would be that, you know, if you haven't found it, keep searching. Uh, you know, because it's there. You just haven't become aware of it yet. Mm. Nice. I appreciate it. And if people want to find you, reach out to you, uh, get to know more about the stuff that you're working with, and you know, why should they find you and where can they find you? Uh, yeah, so uh, they can find me either through uh, the, the complete-coherence.com website. I'll put the link. Uh, they, can find, they, they can find me personally on my LinkedIn. Uh, and why they should find me, well... Just reach out and we'll see why. I don't know. <laughs> uh, different different things, different magic for different people. But uh, I, I so I always encourage people just to get in touch because uh, you never know where where it leads to. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Gester, for taking the time. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Meaningful Work Podcast. This is a disclaimer. People appearing on the podcast, both guests and hosts, represent their own views. InnerWorks do not necessarily work with or condone or recommend any of the practices that the guests or hosts talk about in this podcast episode. For full transparency on how guests and hosts are related to InnerWorks, please check the show notes. What is the point of this paperwork? What is the point of these meetings? What is the point of managers coming and going? You must gain balance within yourself before you can bring balance to the world. Sometimes I faltered. I had bad days. We need people to be human at work. We need ourselves to be human at work.